Podcast One Production. Well, hello and welcome to The Big Questions with me, Adam Spencer. In this episode, we're talking history. And I'm pretty sure it's the first time we've covered history in The Big Questions. We've done a lot of science and a lot of other things, no history. So I thought, let's really do history. The entire history of the universe. It's a field that's known as big history. And one of its leading practitioners is an amazing Australian academic called David Christian. I speak with him about his new book, Origin Story, which takes us from the very beginnings of it all to the current day. It's an amazing ride. I hope you enjoy The Big Questions, The Origin Story. David Christian, welcome to The Big Questions. Thank you very much. Before we get on to uh, this amazing world of big history, let's let's find out a little bit about yourself. Where, where, Where did you grow up? Actually, I was born in New York. Grew up in Nigeria. Sure. Um, and went, You're unusual already. Went to school in England and became a Russian historian and live in Australia. New York, Nigeria, England brackets, Russia, Australia. And my mother was born in Beijing. Really? So what were the formative influences? That you, you, you clearly have a, an inquiring, gregarious mind. Being a child in Nigeria, I think, was very important for me. I mean, it meant, meant my thermostat was set in, in West Africa. So I love, I love a hot climate. Um, but it also meant, I think, that um, I I was always aware of, of very different worlds from the England that I then grew up in, religious worlds, sort of intellectual worlds. Um, First world developing cultural world. Cultural worlds, yeah. Uh, yeah. You had a love for Russian history. We're going to move on to big history soon. Was Russian history just not sufficiently complicated and, and <laughs> hard work for you? Well, I, I, I mean, I, we're I, not mucking around with Russian no, history. No, 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 no I... I, I uh, during the Cold War, Russia was the other. It was the other side. So I, I, as a kid at school, I remember thinking, you know, I wonder what it's like being a kid like me over there and mm. uh, the other side. And eventually I lived in Leningrad for a year as a student under in the time of Brezhnev because I was doing, you know, I was doing a, a, a defil, an Oxford defil uh, there. So that was a wonderful, I mean, it's not an easy experience, but it was wonderful to get a sense of this very different world. So uh, I think that was partly my fascination during the Cold War with Russia, but also just a romantic fascination with Russia, with the great novelists, you know. My girlfriend is Russian and she talks about her childhood and she was there until the late, the early 1990s. And she talks about queuing for bread. Oh, yeah, and, and, I've done all that. And, and she, she tells a story about her, her – she had a slightly different peculiar existence in a special part of Russia, but her grandfather once smuggled back a Snickers bar that her and her sister cut into 10 pieces and shared one piece each per week, so made the Snickers bar last a month. But while they were doing that, felt terribly sorry for those poor kids in the United States suffering under whatever they'd been told – the United States was suffering under at the time. The walls were up so steeply in the same way our ignorance until now of what kids of my age were going through in Russia. One of the weird things is that I think uh, well-educated, smart Russian Soviet intellectuals often had a much more realistic understanding of the West than many Western, Western intellectuals had of the Soviet Union. And that's partly because they knew the press was lying to them 
the media were lying to them. So they read the press very critically and very skillfully, whereas Westerners tend to think, well, you know, we've got such a huge choice that somewhere in, in amongst there's, there's the truth. This was pre-fake news for us. Everything, everything was news, true. It's yeah. in the paper. <clears throat> they knew everything was fake news. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing, and we'll, we'll get to your work in a moment, but the other fascinating thing is I was studying mathematics at the time. And during the Cold War, it was marked for the large part by a lack of communication between uh, the superpowers. When the walls come down and everyone starts talking again, you have this amazing period of time where mathematicians were now meeting up at cong congresses around the world and being open about what they were researching. And say an American mathematician would say to a Russian, yeah, we're struggling on this, we just can't solve this. And the Russians would go, you serious? We'd, we knocked that over in the 1960s. Here you go, have this. And then the Americans might look at something that the Russians and the Lithuanians were struggling with and go, well, try this. And around then, and then with the advent of the internet, you see all these areas of knowledge just jump forward effectively a century's worth in, in just a matter of years. Well, I think I, my, my own impression, I'm not a mathematician unlike you, but my own impression is that there were some very, very good maths. The theoretical stuff, mm. Soviet scholars did wonderfully. The more practical stuff, because their lab equipment, for example, was nothing like as good. So the more practical stuff, very precise measurements, they didn't do as well. Onto your work. You're, this is amazing. The way I like to frame this for people, are uh, you you gave a TED Talk in 2011 at the Big TED Festival in Long, where it was still in Long Beach, California at the time. People should really look at David Christian's TED Talk. And it starts with someone whisking an egg in a bowl, but it's not quite a typical way of whisking an egg. Talk, talk us through what was happening in that video and the, the point you were making, because I think it's a wonderful intro to your, all your work. One of the central themes of a, of a modern origin story is going to have to be entropy. But many, many, so many people who are not scientists, not trained scientifically, are scared of the idea of thermodynamics or entropy. So I was trying to find a sort of quick and snappy way of catching the idea of entropy. And so I got someone to film beating a scrambled egg. But then as you watch it, pretty quickly you realise that actually the film is reversed. Mm. So what's happening is a scrambled egg slowly gets unscrambled the yellow, and gets poured the, the back yellow into the shell. The yellow liquid goes then, into a yolk and then it starts dripping out of the, the bowl back into the eggs which then form. And, and then you end up with a perfect egg. It's slightly unnerving to watch. That's right because because it, 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 it I think captures the sense that we all take this so much for granted that we're really spooked if we see chaos suddenly turn, transforming into order in front of us. So the, the, the big challenge is how did our universe create fantastic complexity like the world we see around us? You know, whenever I fly on a plane, I'm staggered by the number of things that have to go right for this, this to work. You know? So how do you get to complexity in a world that's dominated by the second law of thermodynamics, where most of the time we expect things to get less ordered, less patterned. Let's go through this really slowly because this, this is the, the secret to understanding all of this. The idea of entropy is that like the well-formed egg with a distinct shell and yolk getting broken and ended up just a scrambled mush that is in some ways more disordered or broken up, than the original egg. Entropy is the idea that in general across the universe, things are getting more messed up, disordered, that's right? Yes, I think so. That the two laws of thermodynamics are absolutely fundamental in physics. And the first says very simply, it's very easy to understand, that there's a fixed amount of energy. In other words, the universe was born with a fixed capacity 
to do things and change things. So there's a fixed amount of energy. But that energy, most of the time, is going to take random chaotic forms. It's going to be heat energy. There's small amounts of energy, though, that actually point, push in a direction, and they can create structured things. So somehow or other... Um, we have to explain how you get in some pockets in the universe, like very privileged places, like the surface of a rocky planet, which is what we live in, you, you get these fan, this fantastic complexity. How is it possible if the general tendency of the universe is to wind down, to, 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 to get messier and messier and messier? It's, it's the fundamental plot line, really, of a modern origin story, I think. And just quickly, what is the second law of thermodynamics, David? So the second law of thermodynamics says that... that Energy exists, but over time it's going to take less, more and more chaotic forms. The chances of – look, think of it this way. You've got all the materials for building a, a multi-storey apartment assembled on a building site. Lob a hand grenade into that building site. Now, what are the odds that, that when the dust clears, you're going to get a beautiful built apartment you know, with, ready, ready for sale? Very, very limited. You're more likely to have something more chaotic than that with which you start. Exactly. So that it means whenever we see more pattern appearing, more more complexity, that's interesting. It's really interesting. And it's particularly interesting for us humans because modern human society is so fantastically complex that it seems to be kicking against the second law of thermodynamics. And yet, the physicists will tell us that the second law, you cannot kick against the second law of thermodynamics. Eventually, gazillions and gazillions of years in the future, everything's going to be chaotic again. Everything complex will, will have dissolved. Atoms will have dissolved. Planets will have dissolved. If you were to watch the, the, the movie of the universe, probably in not real time because it drags on a bit, but if you were to watch the history of the universe until now, across the whole space that is the universe... It is phenomenal, isn't it, that over the vast bulk of it there's not much happening or, That's right. or just slow general decay. But in this one little sliver of a shard, of a shadow, of a thread, of one planet in one solar system, in one galaxy, in hundreds of billions of galaxies, blah, 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 there is phenomenal stuff That's right. happening. And this is this what big history is the attempt to understand how does this complexity arise within disorder and where to now? Is that roughly the idea? I think big history. I've called this origin story because in all human societies we know of, or most human societies, there have been or there have been attempts to distill the best knowledge of that society into a coherent story that young people can understand. Now, one of the weird things about the modern world is we don't teach an origin story in, in secular education. We teach in a siloized way. So one of my arguments... World War Two, the Egyptians... Dot, dot, dot. Bit of chemistry, yeah. bit of French literature, mm. yeah. So one of my arguments is that actually it's not that in the modern world we are doomed to intellectual chaos, which is what many artists, many philosophers uh, have argued for much of the 20th century. I think it's it's more like it's more as if we're living a sort of intellectual building site. The traditional origin stories in a globalized world they clashed with each other, they undermined each other's credibility. So people lost faith in traditional origin stories, in the origin stories of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, or but also the indigenous stories that have been around for thousands of years. They kind of lost. People lost confidence in them. And so many people think we we just live in chaos. I don't think that's true. I think there is emerging within global knowledge, and it's the first global 
origin story in human history. And in a sense, what I'm trying to do is see if I can tease out some of the elements of that story. Um, and the version we tell, whether this is the worst one, best one or not, I don't know, is about an early universe. It was actually very simple. But in privileged places... Goldilocks places in yeah. that universe. These are two concepts. More complex things appeared. Two concepts we need to understand to understand your, your origin story are the concepts of Goldilocks conditions and the idea of thresholds. So let's establish both of those and then, then we'll take people on this wild journey. What's, what's a Goldilocks condition? Okay, well, let me, let me just preface this by saying that if you tell a story or try to tell a story across multiple disciplines, you find one of the first problems is each discipline has its own jargon. Mm -hmm. So in a sense in big history... I've been teaching this for 30 years, we've had to sort of invent some terms that work across multiple disciplines. And these are two of them, thresholds and Goldilocks conditions. Now, the idea of Goldilocks conditions is very simple indeed. It's that you see complexity increasing only in very special environments. And what you can say of those environments is the conditions were just right. They were not too hot. They were not too cold. So think of the young planet Earth not too hot so that chemicals are broken down into atoms again, not too cold so that everything's frozen. Just so you can the think perfect of a, temperature. Yeah, some, some astronomers talk about the, the Goldilocks zone. We're not too far from the sun. We're not too close from the sun. We're in that distance around our star where the temperature for a significant period of time was going to be just exactly. right for life to flourish. As we look through your origin story, it's not always just a matter of temperature, is it? But it's, it's a matter of a, a narrow band that things land between. Well, it, it, the, the idea of Goldilocks, you can always ask, when you see something more complex appear, it could be a star, it could be the first planets, or it could, could be the first complex molecules, you can ask the question, what was it in this particular place and time that allowed this to happen, what were the Goldilocks conditions? So that's a question we ask over and over again. And these crucial moments of time in the big history, the, the origin story where Goldilocks conditions happen and we seem to walk through a door to a, another room or another level, these are the, the, the threshold these moments. These are the thresholds. Yeah? yeah, I don't want to make too much of the thresholds because there are a million million times when, you know, new things have appeared, more complex things. The thresholds are sort of way of organising this story, of saying we're going to pick on eight of the most momentous of these points. So a threshold is a moment in time and place when something more complex appears. And what's basically happening is that it always looks magical. It's like seeing a baby being born. Um, things that already existed are being rearranged so that now they have new emergent properties that didn't exist before. So it looks magical because something new seems to ex exist, but actually it emerges because you rearrange things that already exist. And that happens each time. So eight thresholds, it, it's simply an organising principle. There could be 10, there could be 20, there could be 100, but eight seems to work pretty well. So why don't we walk through these uh, thresholds as you've chosen them in your origin story? The first thresholds are... are pretty big one. We go back to when there was literally nothing. We go back to a time when we don't know what was there. We don't even know if there was nothing. There may have been no time. There may have been no space. We just don't know. And then something appears. That's the best we can say at the moment. Um, something appears in the Big Bang. 
Now, from a split second after the appearance of our universe as something smaller than an atom that contains all the energy, everything in today's universe, and then it's exploding, from a split second after it appears, we can tell a very good, scientifically rigorous, evidence-based story. And, and it, it's interesting to pause just on that point. I, I sometimes stop and think about it and I'm stunned by how far back we can look. I agree. I when, agree. When, we're not talking we can see into the first weeks after the Big Bang or the first days or hours. We're talking incredibly small fractions of a second. Something like a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. From that point after the Big Bang, we can tell a good scientific story. It's staggering. It's awe-inspiring. If, if the history of the universe was the distance from the Earth to the sun, then we can see almost within a millimetre of having left the sun. It, yeah. it's, it's remarkable. But then beyond that... Frankly, at the moment, it's a blank. Now, there could be fundamental breakthroughs in which they'll involve reconciling relativity and quantum physics. We don't know how to do that at the moment, at which we can see why the Big Bang happened. But frankly, at the moment, we can't. Um, so as, as Terry Pratchett says, and I quote him in the book, um, in the beginning, there was nothing which exploded. I mean, that's about, <laughs> that's, about as, that's about as precise as we can be. But one thing we do know is that everything we have now and the fact that there's stuff in some places of the universe far more chunky and interesting than in others, that's to do with back just after the, the Big Bang, it was a time where across what was the universe then, incredibly small differences yeah. made incredibly large Absolutely. differences to date, didn't they? Can you, can you explain that concept? Well, I mean, one way of getting it, I mean, that's a nice way of putting it, but think of an atom... And then think of expanding that atom to the size of the universe. Now, obviously, it follows that anything that we can say about that atom, any tiny differences within the atom, are now going to be magnified to the scale of the universe. So that's the sort of process we're talking about. So when we look up at the sky and we see a distribution of where all the matter is and where there's a lot more energy over here than there, that's because back when the universe was incredibly small, there were incredibly minor differences in the distribution of, 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 of energy and, and stuff back then. Absolutely. And at the moment, there's an idea in, in Big Bang cosmology, which is of inflation, which is that within, <clears throat> okay, I, this is, I, I'm not going to try to be precise yeah. here, but, you know, we're talking about a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. For a tiny fraction of a second, this, this atom-sized thing expands at staggering speeds. That's inflation. So it means that tiny differences got locked in even when the universe is the size of a galaxy. And, and then it continues expanding more slowly. Okay, so what is the next threshold? That, that goes on for a while. And I, I like to say to people that the very early universe was a lot like Tom Cruise. Amazingly hot, but unbelievably dense. Apologies to any Tom Cruise fans of that. I quite like that one. Uh, and and so it takes a while for things to cool down before anything else can happen. Yes, this is around what, what you call threshold number two in the book? Yeah. So, so threshold one creates this rapidly expanding, very hot universe um, that's actually very simple. We know what it was like 380,000 years after the Big Bang because we can measure the cosmic background radiation. That's a sort of release of energy at the moment the first atoms formed. So we know roughly how energy was distributed at that point. So we can think of the universe at that stage as consisting of 
billions of, of a thin mist of hydrogen and helium atoms with dark energy, which we don't understand, dark matter, which we don't understand, lots of photons of energy passing through. But it's Very a, simple. But it's important to understand that even that universe is remarkably more complex That's right. than what you had when it was just yes. energy exploding exactly. out. So we've moved to complexity even in that sense. There's al- there are already rules about what can happen. Energy exists in four forms, and each of them has their own precise rules. So gravity always tends to pull things together. Electromagnetism comes in positive and negative forms, and each has a precise strength. So that already explains why the universe was never going to be completely random. There are already rules which limit the number of ways in which this initial energy uh, gift of the universe can be expressed. Okay. Now, the next threshold you take us to, David, is the formation of the first stars. Stars. That's right. That's like in the the billions of years ago. Yep. So you think of this thin mist of hydrogen and helium. What happens is gravity is the crucial player here because gravity tends to clump things together. Um, that's what gravity does. So And it, works over very long distances. At very long distances. It So it breaks up this thin mist into clumps. Now, it, then each clump, gravity gets more and more powerful as they get denser. So it crushes these these things together and then they start getting hot again. Now, the whole universe is cooling down rapidly, but these clumps, as they're squashed together because of density, get hotter and hotter and hotter until in their core you get temperatures that are going back to the temperatures close to, close to the Big Bang. And once you've got to, I think it's something like 10 million degrees, then protons can fuse together. And this is what happens in a thermonuclear weapon. And there's this huge release of energy because some of the matter is turned into pure energy. So at the centre of these clumps, billions and billions of them, you suddenly get a furnace like a hydrogen bomb, that pushes back against gravity and now the whole thing stabilises and at the centre there's a huge amount of heat being emitted. We have a star. That's what a star is. Um, And billions of them pop up. And again, a a star is a more complex object than the soup of individual atoms or the mist or before that the pure energy that that begat them. And the whole universe is more complex now because you have gradients of heat and energy that you didn't have before. The early universe was incredibly uniform. You've got gradients of density. Stars are very dense. The areas outside are not at all dense. The stars have structure. You know, there's an inner core where fusion is happening. There's an outer layer where there's the sort of protons that eventually will will drop into the centre. So the universe is much more structured. Now, if it all just stayed like that, lovely shiny stars out across the universe and that was all, that'd be be pretty, that'd be lovely, well done universe, but something fundamental happens to the stars that then kicks off another level of complexity, yes? So so the third threshold that, that we talk about. And again, I stress these thresholds, that's something a bit arbitrary about them, but the third one is dying large stars can create temperatures even higher than those in a normal star. Now, to smush protons together, you need very high temperatures. So if you get in these dying stars, you get even higher temperatures, so you now can smush lots of protons together. What that does is create all the elements of the periodic table. This happens in supernovae. We're also beginning to learn that it may happen in other ways when neutron stars collide, for example. This is a beautiful thing for people to understand, those higher elements, something like gold. If you're wearing a gold ring, gold does not 
naturally occur in the background of the universe. Gold only occurs when a star collapses and then explodes, things get spat out, that all mists away somewhere, and then maybe if out of some pocket of that mist, it clumps together to form a planet and there was a lot of gold in that initial mist, that planet will have gold underground. So if you're wearing a gold ring now, you're wearing the fiery ashes of the collapse of some of a supernova. superstar that's in right, the past. That's right. Isn't that so, beautiful? So the, so the dying stars create a universe that's much more chemically rich in which there's a vastly greater variety of forms of matter. More now complex you can again. get chemistry. Uh-huh. You know, in, in, Bring it in on. dust clouds in space, you now have most of it's still hydrogen and helium, but you, you have this sprinkling of all the other elements of the periodic table, and you start getting molecules forming. And we can detect them in, in clouds in, mm. in space. We can de- detect even, you know, basic amino, amino acids, you know, there's, organic there's giant molecules. Clouds of, we, know, we know there's giant clouds of alcohol out there in That's parts right. of the space. I Colossal. love the, the fact that we backtrack and we, we measure the percentage now of hydrogen versus helium versus other elements and that also back informs and says yeah look that guess about the big bang is probably right because if the models of the big bang were correct you should have this percentage of hydrogen versus this percentage of helium and they match up to spooky levels that's right and and that's one of the crucial pieces of evidence that the big bang is on the right track is that there's this weird distribution of 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 elements in the universe it's something like um uh, 74% hydrogen, uh, 24% Almost helium. Almost all else helium and then... And then only about 2% is all the other elements. You know, so, so in most of the universe, still hydrogen and helium dominate. So now what we need to get people like you and me is we need to look for areas where actually the mix of chemicals is very different indeed, where all the elements, there's a huge mix of all elements. And could form something like, for example our solar system. Exactly. Another another threshold, another level of evolution or complexity above what we had before. What's so important about our solar so, system? So that's, that's th- we call it threshold four, is the creation of planets, moons, asteroids, very different from stars and chemically much more complex. Stars are utterly dominated by hydrogen, helium. Sometimes they're accumulating elements up to iron, but that's it. Planets, asteroids, moons are chemically much more complex. Carbon, uranium. Particularly the rocky ones. Mm. So gas planets like Jupiter are still pretty simple, still a bit more like like the sun. But rocky planets are chemically incredibly complex because what's happened is that most of the hydrogen and helium has been blasted away. So what you're left with is more or less that 2% of other elements. And suddenly, on places like the young Earth or young Venus or Mars, you have this incredibly complicated chemical environment where exotic chemistry can happen, where suddenly, you know, given some water, given some energy flows, you can create really complex molecules. This gets us to threshold five. I think we need a bit of a breather because we are smashing through these thresholds. I'll be back with more of David Christian and his amazing origin story in just a few seconds on The Big Questions. When we left before the break, we were about to open the door to threshold five. We've got to the point from a big bang, about all of which we don't yet know, but we know a lot, through the first stars forming, the creation of higher elements out of the collapse of stars, the creation of solar systems and suns, our solar system. Threshold five, this complex chemistry that needs such an array of perfect conditions 
to presuppose it could even happen, starts happening on our Earth and up bubbles, we have some theories as to why, let's go into them, but up bubbles the beginnings of life. What, 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 what do you, there's a few different theories. What do you think is the, is the best guess as to where the early life, the earliest forms of life came from? It's important to notice that each threshold builds on the rest. So the stars make possible complex chemicals. Complex chemicals make possible rocky planets like the Earth. And, and we can list some of the Goldilocks conditions for life on, on the young Earth. And actually we now know there are billions and billions of planets like the Earth, which means it's very exciting because it means the odds are that there are billions of planets with bacterial life at least. So we know some of the conditions. One is lots of chemicals, so you can have really rich chemistry happening. The second is probably the existence of water in liquid forms. Now, the simplest way of describing this is to say that in gases, atoms are shooting past each other and it's hard for them to hitch up. In, in solids, they're locked in place. But in liquids, they can cruise and move around. So liquids are ideal for chemistry. But what that means is you need a planet whose surface temperatures are somewhere between 0 and 100 degrees. Very special Goldilocks conditions. There is, there is a theory that on one of the moons of Saturn called Titan, which is a lot colder, but you have methane exactly. in liquid, solid and uh, gas form. The methane, the methodological cycle, could play the same role as the hydrological exactly. cycle on Earth, but yes, it would be a lot smellier for a But even, even then, what we're talking about is, is, a, is, a, is an environment with quite precise Goldilocks yes. conditions. We even don't know yet, but it's quite likely water's not the only liquid that can enable this really complex chemistry. So life comes out of incredibly complex chemistry. An environment, you also need gentle flows of heat, not too hot, otherwise they'll blast molecules apart. You're not going to get life emerging inside a star. Not too cold, because otherwise everything's frozen. Nothing can happen. So perfect Goldilocks temperatures for rich chemistry. And at the moment, the betting is that the ideal conditions were deep beneath the early ocean. Are we talking the subthermal vents? Subthermal Love vents. the subthermal vents. So, Explain a subthermal vent. Well, so this is these are areas where... Beneath the surface of the Earth, we now know the magma, there's this huge area where you don't actually have rock, you have sort of things almost liquid, things are moving around. Almost so, lava-like. So, exactly. Think of what comes out of a volcano. So, so these are like sub-oceanic mini-volcanoes. Stuff is bursting up. Now, that stuff is rich in chemicals. It's also, there's plenty of temperature. And then that hits the water. So you've got this incredibly rich mix of chemicals of various kinds. You've got flows of energy. And one more ingredient that may be crucial is lava. Think basalt. Tiny little pores in the basalt. Now, it may be those tiny little pores create a space a bit like a cell. Perfect little space for sort of chemical experimentation. So we don't yet have a perfect story about the creation of life, but it's a pretty good story. It's getting much better, and it means the betting is that bacterial life is quite common in the universe. Once we get to life, it's the building blocks of life that play a crucial role, aren't they, David? D DNA and RNA and things like that. What and why? Well, it's a very different form of complexity from all the others that we've seen, because it's, is this the biggest step of all the thresholds in I, some ways? I think so. I, th I think this is the biggest biggest one. 
because it introduces a whole series of new qualities that have not existed before. It's really hard to resist the idea that living things, and we're talking about whole cells, that they contain billions of molecules interacting in very complex ways, but it's as if they act with purpose. Now, we know what the purpose is. The purpose of living organisms is to survive as long as possible in complex and changing environments. So what they do is they extract energy from their environment. We call it food. So every time you, when you eat a Vegemite sandwich, that's what you're doing. The same thing. You're could extracting be light, energy. Could be water. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, they do that. The second thing they do is reproduce. So survive as long as possible and reproduce. And reproduction is crucial because it means once you get these complex things, then the template for creating more of them gets reproduced. The individuals die, but the templates are appear in multiple copies. And this is the basis for evolution. You said in your TED Talk this is the first time that information, in inverted commas, ent enters the story. Absolutely. Because living things, unlike rocks need to have ways of detecting information, even the simplest of bacteria. It needs to know the difference between a dangerously hot atmosphere and a dangerously cold one and have some mechanism for moving away from the danger zone. So or It might need to know the direction in which to rotate to be facing heat or to be able to exactly. analyse something as edible or not in, in, exactly. in its exactly. concept of eating. So information... What information really is, is the rules, not the rules of the universe. That information is built into every atom. The information living things need is information about their local environment, their immediate environment, and they have to have ways of detecting it and reading it. So that's when information enters the story. And that really is what makes us humans so strange because we can accumulate information in a way that no other organism does. And information for living organisms is power because it gives you the power to survive, to control energy flows and resource flows. So we humans, now this is threshold six, this is why we are the strangest organisms, I think, that have appeared in four billion years. What's happening right now is very strange in planetary history. You have an organism that can collectively accumulate more and more information. That information gives it power over energy flows and resource flows on the planet. And now we have so much power that we dominate change in the biosphere. And you say one of the crucial things is that, that separates us is, through happenstance, a sufficiently large brain to then have language. And once you have language, you can the knowledge I accumulate, I can pass on to other people. Exactly. And I'm here with the accumulation of human knowledge behind me feeding in to me to take on knowledge to pass on to others. And not just that, all the gadgets around us are based on accumulated knowledge of millions of different human minds. So each individual of us shares in the knowledge accumulated by millions of other humans. We're the first species in the history of planet Earth that can accumulate information in this way. We can be pretty sure of that, because if we saw other species that could do it, we would see evidence that they had become more and more powerful. They would fill more and more niches, and we don't see it for any species except for our own. I, I love to pause occasionally and think about there'd be 12-year-old kids walking around in Australia now who in certain areas of science would know more than the most brilliant minds alive 
a mere 200 years ago yep. because they've done year seven science at school. Yep. They've learned about a double helix and they've seen a periodic table. Well, there you go. You would have been the smart, in terms of chemistry, you would have been the smartest person in the world in 1600. So what this accumulation makes, it makes us powerful. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing because it's possible to be dangerously powerful and that's what we are right now. We have nuclear weapons, so we have the potential to destroy much of the biosphere in 24 hours. That's the sort of power we have. And it was only when we got to a certain point in this journey of complexity that we would have, hopefully not use, but even have that potential power. Exactly. So it's, it's a byproduct, you're saying, because there's a point you make early on in, in your book, in your TED Talk, that as we move to each level of complexity, each increasingly complex thing is also more susceptible to being destroyed. I mean, no, no disrespect to stars. Humans are a lot more fascinating than stars in some ways, the range of things we do and the complexity. But a human's a lot more susceptible also to being wiped out than than a star is. Am, am I getting you right? In, am I paraphrasing you correctly there? A- absolutely. But I- but I should back off it slightly because this is not this is not like a kind of um, absolute scientific theory. It's a sort of tendency yeah. that is very tempting to think is real. There are lots of ways of measuring the sense in which we humans, or even a cockroach, are vastly more complex than a star. The greater variety of chemicals, greater variety of functions, of subroutines in us, you know, vastly greater. But also, the other obvious thing is, if I... If I get lucky, I may live for 100 years. The sun will live for 9 billion. It's much simpler. So we shouldn't assume that being more complex is good. But but we humans happen to be staggeringly complex. So, of course, we're interested in complex things and we're interested in how complexity arises. So you think stars sit around on the weekend and laugh at us with our self-obsessions and our keeping up with the Kardashians? It and could be. It could be, except that they're too simple to laugh, poor things. <laughs> it's interesting. Like we, people can grab the book if they want to walk through the other thresholds, end of the ice age, fossil fuel revolution, all that sort of stuff. Can I ask you a point that other thinkers make is in smaller time frames, let's just take human history, uh, the agrarian age versus you know the pre-industrial revolution versus the industrial revolution versus the digital ages. The other thing is our thresholds, our ages are compressing significantly in time. And in the past, when you moved into the agrarian age, everyone had sort of 8,000 years to get their head around what that meant before, wow, suddenly we went through a pre-industrial age. There's a lot of people now who haven't even got their head around the digital age, and we look like we're about to go into the age of AI and, and hardcore machine learning. Is there something challenging in the rate of increase of speed, it seems to be, that we are stepping up these levels? Look, in human history, there's no doubt at all about an acceleration in in the rate of complexity. At the scale of, of the universe, I don't think we can say that because we just don't know what's going on on other planets. But there's a very good reason why these increases in complexity should happen exponentially for humans because this process of what I call collective learning uh, is there are all sorts of positive feedback cycles built into it. So for about 200,000 years, most humans lived as 
small-scale foraging communities, information accumulates quite slowly. It's exchanged quite slowly. Then you get agriculture, which is a whole series of new technologies that give humans control over more flows of energy through the biosphere. Um, and suddenly populations are larger. More information is being exchanged. The pressure to exchange information is greater. People have you time also, to sit back and think. Sit back and write because you're not living moment to moment to feed yourself. But you also get um, new technologies of communication like writing or transportation like you know, sailing boats of various kinds. So that, that the drivers of collective learning get more and more powerful. And that, I think, is why in human history you see about 200,000 years in which we lived as foragers. That's most of human history. Then for about 10,000 years, many humans have lived as, 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 as farmers. And it's just 200 years that we've lived using the staggering energy flows from fossil fuels. If you're a farmer, what you're doing is you're releasing energy captured from sunlight through photosynthesis over the last, if you burn a piece of wood, it's energy captured over the last 10, 20, maybe 30 years max. If you're burning a piece of coal or putting oil or, you know, petrol into, in, into your car, you're releasing energy that was accumulated over about 300 million years on the earth. So the fossil fuels bonanza of energy is staggering. And I'm increasingly convinced that Everything we see around us in this modern world, all the vast changes in the last 200 years, are really owed to the, owed to the staggering increase of energy from fossil fuels. You, you believe in this so much that you, have, you haven't just written a book, you haven't just given a TED Talk. There's actually a project that the BHP, the Big History Project Online, where this can be taught in schools, there's a big online presence, not just you, Bill Gates got behind you and, and supported it. Tell us a bit about the Big History Project. Well, uh, Bill Gates came across Big History. I did a series of lectures, um, actually 48 lectures for the <laughs> teaching company in the US. It's probably too many lectures, but anyway. You know, so, offense, I heard in the mid-30s it, it slowed down a bit, but you came home really um, hard. But um, so when he retired as full-time CEO of, of Microsoft, he he's a voracious reader and consumer of, of lectures of various kinds. So he stumbled on my big history lectures and apparently was watching them while he was on his treadmill. That's the story he's told me. Anyway, he loved them. And what he said is, I think these need to be taught in schools. How, how, how did he reach out? How did you first hear that Bill Gates was onto your stuff? It's a nice story. I, for eight years, I taught in San Diego in the States. So I'm in my office in San Diego in the end of 2008 during the global financial crisis. I get a phone call one morning and I'm in a foul mood because I've, I've got lots of administrative chores I've got to do. So a phone, I pick up the phone and say, yes, what do you want? And so a very nice woman's voice at the other end says, oh, is this a bad time? I say, no, 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 what do you want? <laughs> and she says, um, Oh, look, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm actually calling from Mr. Bill Gates' office. Um, I say, oh, yes. <laughs> and she Your says, mood uh, got very better in just a finger click. <laughs> so Mr. Bill Gates really likes your work and he's coming down to San Diego. And if you can find some time in your busy schedule to meet Mr. Gates. So I'm really proud of the fact that I've got the answer right. The answer is Yes, I think I can find some time in my busy schedule. You didn't do the, just give me a second, I'll see. <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah, look, I can shuffle a few things around. <laughs> I avoided that blunder. Anyway, so I, I met him and I'm ushered into a hotel room and then it's just Bill and me talking and it's, you know, it's nerd on nerd. And the project uh, is born from that. And, no, so he 
we talked about big history, and eventually he, he had to go over the road to talk to Craig Ventner. Um, who was the first human to have his DNA fully sequenced. Exactly, exactly. In, anyway, in an exercise that cost in the billions of dollars that right. by the time my kids are the age that happened to Craig Ventner, you'll get change out of 50 bucks. <laughs> That's right. But so anyway, at the end of this conversation, and it was just, I was very nervous, of course, but it was just wonderful because he's a great enthusiast. At the end of it, he said, look, so here's the, here's the deal. I think this needs to be in school. And I'd thought that for a long time. I had no idea how to take a sort of boutique university course into schools. And he said, what I'd like to do is, is because he's got a lot of experience of trying to experiment with interesting new syllabi. Um, he said, I would like to fund the creation of a free online syllabus in big history that any school can use. And then any school that wants to try a new syllabus can try it. So that's the beginning of the Big History Project. And I was very much involved in designing this in 2010, 11, 12. I'm told it's now being taught in about a thousand schools wow. in the US and about a hundred in Australia because it's now, because I'm back in Australia, it's become an Australia-US project. That must make you feel great to think that, that that's a significant impact you're having. It, it's wonderful with the support of Bill. We couldn't have done it without that. But the reason I feel so strongly about it is because I think this sort of wide-angle lens is what young people desperately need in today's world in order to understand the big challenges of climate change, declining biodiversity. You know, 20 years' time, they'll have their hands on the levers of power. They're going to be making the big decisions that will change the biosphere. And, and the other thing that I think is so attractive about that as an educational concept is that you can choose to take a class and lock them in on a, a syllabus of really basic chemistry that runs a whole term and probably doesn't lead to any discernible end, or you can subtly introduce chemistry by stealth through this glorious story of everything. At the end of that year, when the kids offered chemistry the next year, they may well go, well, hold, chem chem that's, that's like why we've got exactly. life. I might, I might have a bit of a look. At that, it's a lovely little. I don't mean to be. I'm not saying it's superficial, but a beautiful sampler of everything you might possibly want to know about in one course. This is why I call it origin story because it gives you the sense that in a siloized educational system, actually there are connections between all the different disciplines you do, and this story can help you see it. So many students who are terrified by science, if they learn that the Big Bang is not something impossibly complex that only Stephen Hawking can understand, if they learn that there's a story there and it's full of meaning, then they may go on to think, I want to learn more about this science. So I think this is part of the solution to the sort of people worry about STEM programs, you know, STEM courses. Let's wrap this fascinating conversation up. Your, your final uh, threshold that you speak about in the book is finding a sustainable world order. Let's let's say we do that, and that's no guarantee at the moment. Let's, let's say we get it all on a sustainable track. What's your prediction for the next threshold after that or the most interesting big threshold that's yet to come, David? Haven't a clue. <laughs> I mean, look, we're now in sort of big speculative territory. What we can AI, say, cyborgs, populating space. What we, what we space. can say very clearly is we can see the challenges facing us in the future. Whether we succeed or not will depend on what a younger generation does, which is why their education is so important. I suspect it is changes in us humans and and that will involve you know 
adding more and more sort of um, mechanical bits to us, perhaps change so that so that in in a few hundred years it may well be that that uh, our, our ancestors will be very different, will live much longer, will have perfect eyesight till the end of their lives. Will I'm I'm, um, a, I'm only one inserted chip away from being the chess player I have always desperately wanted to be. Are you a chess player? That's the problem. I'd like to think that I am. I just need one little chip. Unfortunately, as soon as I get it, everyone, everyone else will get it, it. and right, we'll all just right. play a, glorious right. draws. But there'll be a little, there'll be a short couple. If I'm an early adopter, there'll be a couple of weeks there when I'm smashing everyone. Look, I, I must admit, some of this terrifies me because I once heard I was at a conference where people were talking about downloading your mind yes. into a onto a CD, your consciousness. Yeah, terrifies terrifies me because I had this terrifying vision of my grandchildren mucking about with these CDs, you know. And, Hacking and, and into I, grandpa. And, no, 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 please don't, please, please don't do that. So, so I think there's a lot to be said for mortality. Without mortality, you don't get evolution, you don't get change, and you probably don't get the emergence of new and new complex things. And, and within the incredibly brief window of the history of the universe, it is that we are alive how lucky we are to be alive at this part of the origin story. Very, very exciting moment. Thank you so much, David Christian. Love it to speak with you. Pleasure. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One studios. Series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more big questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more big questions soon. Big questions.